invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 8 as we continue our series in uh, the Gospel of Mark. Take out your notes as well so you can follow along. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the organization called Teach America, but they um, go after the brightest students in the world and they send them to the nation's worst public schools. And um, a few years ago, one of, a representative from this organization went to Duke University. And here's what he said to the students at Duke. He said this, I can tell just by looking at you that I've come to the wrong place. Somebody told me that this was the BMW school, and I believe it. Just looking at you, I know you've achieved success and that you're on track for even more success. Yet, I'm here today to convince you to throw your life away in the toughest job you'll ever have. I want people to go to the hollows of West Virginia and the ghettos of South Los Angeles to teach in the worst schools in America. Last year, two of our teachers were killed on the job. But just by looking at you, I can tell you're not interested. So go to grad school, make your millions, live for success and comfort. But if by chance you're interested in the, the toughest job in America, I have a few brochures so you can come and see me. Meeting's over. And the Duke students thronged to the table. They pushed their way to get a brochure from this man. I believe that deep down, God has wired us for a mission that is way beyond what we can do. A sense of doing something important. You know, challenge-free life uh, might be safe, but it's boring. It's trite. It's empty. That's one of the things I love about Jesus because he describes himself as gentle and lowly and then he can turn around and, and issue without apology a challenge that cuts to the core of who we are. And that's like this passage we're looking at this morning. We could call it the ultimate challenge and it's in verse 34. We're going to read the whole passage but look at 34. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And every time I read these verses, especially in the context of what we'll be looking at this morning, it stops me in my tracks. It's so bold. It's so in your face. It's so uncompromising. What Jesus says is all or nothing. But if anyone is going to claim the name of Christ, call himself a Christian, a Christ one, a little Christ, literally, then you've got to wrestle with these verses. You have to understand what's being said here. And so at the top of your outline, you have this. These verses we're looking at this morning are, are the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. From this point on, all events move toward Jerusalem and the cross. 
And we have here Peter's famous confession of Christ and an explanation that the genuine Christian life involves dying to self so that we might be identified with Christ. So let's read our passage, Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake, for the gospel, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. This is God's word. Well, these verses give us the answer to a few very important questions. And the questions are, who is Jesus? And why did he come? And what does he expect of us? So from here, through the end of chapter 10, Jesus main te- this is Jesus' main teaching on discipleship. And once in each chapter, 8, 9, and 10, Jesus predicts his death and then each time immediately follows that up with instruction about what it means to be a disciple, about true discipleship. It's interesting that this, this takes place at Caesarea Philippi. They had over a dozen temples to different gods in this area, and this is right where Jesus is walking them to. And and so he's deliberately taking his disciples to a place where there was so much paganism and idolatry and and, and hostility, actually, to the Hebrew faith. Because what all these cults stood for, all this idol worship, was directly against what, what God says in his word. So Jesus wants there to be a stark comparison between who he is and who they are, and there is indeed that that stark contrast. The king who came to die and serve calls us as his followers to do the same. The first thing that we learn about discipleship from these verses, and this is number one on your outline, is that we're to know and personally confess who Jesus is. As Jesus, we looked at last week, brought gradual physical sight 
to the man that he healed. Now he brings gradual spiritual sight to the disciples concerning who he is and what kind of a Messiah he would be. Uh, You know, there's a a guy named David Platt who wrote a book called Radical. Uh, If you've never read that, I warmly would recommend that to your reading. It's a very challenging and very good book. And in uh, David Platt says this, uh, and and I think it's very insightful. He says that uh, in America, we have a broken perspective of Jesus. Here's what Platt writes. We American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who is fine and with nominal devotion that that doesn't really bother our comforts, doesn't infringe on us. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who for that matter wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. So, What we see here, and this is letter A under number one, is the question we all must answer is, who do you say Jesus is? That was the question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say I am? And they started off with these, what other people think, you know, you're Elijah, you're uh, John the Baptist, still others, you're one of the prophets. And this all sounds like people today that have a problem accepting, they accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but that's all. Uh, They're very affirming and honoring of who Jesus is, but they all deny who he really is. You know, I've learned to ask people when they say they believe in God, when I'm in a discussion with them, Uh, to tell me about the God they believe in. And what I often find is it's not the God of the Bible. If they say they believe in Jesus, I'll ask them, tell me about the Jesus you believe in. And I find it's not the Jesus of the Bible oftentimes. So then, letter B, the next thing on your outline is that there's one acceptable answer. So Jesus shifts the questioning from his disciples to what everyone else thinks to what they think. But what about you, he says in verse 29, who do you say that I am? So we've already seen in this gospel a number of, uh, some some very good descriptions and accurate descriptions of who Jesus is. You've got them on your outline in chapters one and three and chapter five. And now we can add to that Peter's confession right here. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Peter and the others rejected the opinions of the crowd and the religious leaders, and we should reject the opinions of of what people think about Jesus that's not based in the Bible. And Peter says the Christ, the anointed one, Peter's not just saying you're a king, but he is saying you're the king of all kings. You are the true king. You are the, the king that's gonna put everything right. This is the confession on which the church is built. That Matthew tells us, heaven, that Peter didn't come with on his own. He didn't come up with that, but that, that the Father had revealed that to him. 
And this is, this is the confession, the great confession that we believe. This is the moment Peter got it. And Jesus accepts what Peter says. But then in verse 31, Jesus in essence says, yes, I am the king, but I am not anything like the king that you were expecting. And this is a great reminder that we need to be careful to the words that we listen to around us in the world. The world has so much to say about morality. Every time we look at the television, every time we listen to the radio, every time we, uh, we look at a billboard, every time we watch a movie, we're fighting against what the world wants to say to us. And wants to, they, want, they, they want our minds. They want our hearts. And they have a lot to say about morality and, and entertainment. They have a lot to say about religion and politics. And there's no shortage of perspectives on who Jesus is and what his life means and how his teaching relates to us and the beliefs and the practices that he would approve of. And the world tells us that a lot of things are okay that are not okay. The world will tell us that a homosexual lifestyle is just fine. But that's not what God says. And so we need to submit everything, our sexual ethics and everything else, to him and to his word. And like Peter, we need to have a clear understanding of what biblical faith is all about in order to avoid all the counterfeits that are out there who want to control our hearts and, and want to control our minds. So be careful to whom you listen and their views on God and, and their views on Jesus and their views on, on truth and goodness and whether or not those views are founded on what the Bible says. Don't let your personal preferences nullify God's word and the truth that he gives us there. And yeah, a lot of it's uncomfortable. We don't like it. It's not what we would prefer, but it's what God says. And that's what we need to be concerned about. All of our thoughts and all our beliefs, when they're submitted to God, that's how we experience true peace. That's how we understand the joy of the Lord and, and how that joy can be our strength. The second thing we learn about discipleship from these verses is that we're to follow God's ways and not man's. It's on your outline number two. We're to follow God's ways and not man's. We learn that Jesus is the king that has come to die. And this is not at all what the disciples or the people expected. But that's what we all desperately need is this kind of a king. So how do we respond to this kind of a king? We repent of our sin. We believe in him. And what we learn here is that the king must die. And our response is to take up our cross and follow him. And so what we see under there, number A, under number two, is that God's ways are often hard, but they are clear. God's ways are often hard, but clear. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, but I am not the one you were expecting. I, I am a king, but I am going to a cross. And he uses these words, as Jesus explains, look at verse 31, that he, I am the son of man who must suffer many things and must be killed. And you can underline those words must in your Bible. 
And we're going to go back and talk about those. But start off, Jesus uses the term son of man. And this is Jesus' favorite term for himself. So he's not just saying that he's human here, but he's referring to the Hebrew scriptures in Daniel chapter 7, where it gives a reference to the one who will come like a son of man. And so you've got this on your outline. The son of man is a divine person who will come from heaven to put everything right. That's why the son of man comes, to put everything right. And he refers to the son of man again in verse 38. But then Jesus says that the son of man must suffer. Look at verse 31. And at this point, Jesus is bringing these two ideas together that have never been brought together in the history of the world until this moment. And it blows the minds of the disciples. They can't wrap their minds around it. Never before has anyone talked about suffering and Messiah in the same sentence, in the same idea. Messiah and suffering never went together. Yes, there is in Isaiah chapters 43 and chapters 53, they they talk about the, the servant of the Lord who suffers. But nobody before Jesus, nobody before right now in what we're reading in this account of, of, of Mark has put together the idea of suffering with the Messiah, brought together the ideas of Daniel 7 and Isaiah 43 and 53. The idea that the Messiah, the Son of Man, this incredible divine figure could suffer made no sense at all to the disciples. They could not understand this. Because the Messiah is supposed to come and make everything right in the world. The Messiah is supposed to come and defeat all injustice. How in the world could he possibly defeat evil? Could he possibly defeat all injustice by being killed? They couldn't, they couldn't get this. They thought it was ridiculous. In fact, they thought it was so ridiculous that Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter's freaked out by this because as early as he can remember, he was taught that the Messiah would go to Jerusalem and that he would be on a throne. That he would make everything right from a throne. Not that he would be killed. And Jesus says, yes, I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. I am indeed going to Jerusalem to defeat evil and to defeat all injustice. But I'm gonna do it by dying on a cross. And I think most of us know this, but I want to remind us that the cross was the epitome of helplessness and shame. There are a lot of other ways to die that are more humane, if you're going to talk about a humane way to be put to death. Guillotine my head, cut my head off, but don't hang me on a cross naked in front of everybody with nails through my hands and through my feet so that all these people could walk by and look at me completely exposed. How shameful that was. There was some dignity about just about every other form of execution. It's the exact opposite of a throne to die on a cross. 
Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem not to live, but to die. I'm going to Jerusalem not to take power, but to lose it. And that's how I'm going to make everything right. And that's how I'm going to defeat injustice. And then one last comment on verse 31. Jesus doesn't just say the son of man will die. He says the son of man must die. Twice he says it in verse 31. He must be killed. And what Jesus is saying here is not that I have come to die, but that I I have come because I must die. Because the world cannot be made right and your life cannot be changed unless I die. And here what we see here as, as his disciples, and this is the second thing under number two, is that God's will is often a challenge, but it's always perfect. God's will is always perfect. Jesus' words meant that his followers had to be prepared to obey his words and follow his will no matter what the consequences are, were or are for the sake of the gospel. And it was right after this that Jesus took up his cross and and he did what was the most difficult thing that we can imagine him doing. And Peter was completely, Peter was completely on board with Jesus as the Messiah, but Peter was completely not on board with Jesus going to the cross. And Peter rebukes him. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It is a bad call to try to rebuke God. It doesn't go well for Peter. You don't do that to the living God. And Peter gets in return what he had just given in spades. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now that might seem harsh, but that's what Jesus said to Peter and that's exactly what was necessary. Because Peter was doing the same thing that Satan had done in Matthew chapter four, where he tempted Jesus and and, and Jesus has this great battle with Satan in Matthew chapter four. And what what, what Peter is doing is offering Jesus the crown. He's saying, I want you to go to Jerusalem, but you can't die. That's exactly what Satan did in Matthew 4. Look at all these uh, these thrones. I will give you everything. I will give you the whole world. Just fall down and worship me. Like Peter here, it's easy for us to think we have a better plan than God. But let me inform you, we do not. You ever said that in your life? God, this is what I want you to do. This is the only way I see you working in in this situation. And then God chooses not to work in the way you want him to work. And you say, God, you've got it wrong. What's wrong with you? We We don't say that to God. We're the, the, the pot. We don't say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Why, why, do, why is this situation like this in my life? I don't like this situation. And God says, this is what I have for you. And so our prayer should never be, Lord, this is what I want now. 
That's a contradiction in terms to say, Lord, this is what I want now. He's not really your Lord if you're saying that. But you say, Lord, not my will be done, but I want your will done in my life. Even if I don't like it, even if it's hard, I want your will done in my life. You see, Peter wants a Jesus who fits his agenda. That's what we want sometimes. We live in this world, it's hard to not want that. To not want God to fulfill our agenda. But he, he, Peter thinks he knows the kind of Messiah Jesus should be, and he tries to get him to fit his idea. We want a Jesus sometimes that we can control. We don't understand that God's will may not be easy. God's will is not safe. But it's always good. It's always good. And I think one of the reasons that Peter gets so furious with Jesus is that he's got this own agenda. He's saying, this is the way I want it to work. Peter was using Jesus to get his agenda accomplished. We can't do that. So you can't say, I'll obey if. That can't be the way you come to a king. You don't come that way to a king. You don't come and negotiate. You come and bow down. You lay your sword at his feet and you say, I am your servant. Command me. That's how we come to the king. A servant doesn't come to the king and say, this is the way I want it done. We need to submit to him because he went to a cross for us. We can trust him. So coming to Jesus isn't an agreement. It's not a contract. It's submitting. It means surrender. He died so that we could live. And now he asks us to lose our life so that we may find life in him. The third thing we learn about discipleship in this passage from these verses is that, and this is number three, Jesus calls us to die. What does it mean? Well, first of all, it means the self-centered life must be put to death. It's on your outline, letter A. We talk about hard times. We talk about painful things that we go through as being the cross that we have to bear. In reality, our cross comes from living out what we know to be the truth. In business, when it's easy to cheat and we do what's right because we're following Jesus. We live it out in our sexual ethics and the way we live sexually in this world. You know, it's, it's when we come to a, 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 a we're dating somebody and we, we say, well, you know, we're not married, but it's gonna be okay now to, to have sex. And God says, no, you wait until, the, it's the marriage bed that's undefiled. You wait until marriage to have sex. So that's when we submit to the cross of Christ. That's when we bear his cross. It's every day living out in obedience what we know to be the will of God as it's given to us in his word. This is what every Christian is to live like. Unfortunately, it seems that this is maybe more of the exception than the rule. And there are three things that he defines it as. So the first one is whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. So the, the, the gospel 
calls us to self-denial. And that also means turning from sin, turning from selfish ambition, repenting from our sin before God. As we follow Christ, we seek to do it on his terms, not on our terms. Following Jesus doesn't just require accepting him as Savior, but submitting to him as Lord. And the second requirement is whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross. Luke adds the word daily in Luke chapter 9. This isn't something that we would do naturally, but it's what Jesus says we must do to follow him. What Jesus is saying is that for those who desire to be disciples, rather than seeking prosperity and ease in our lives, we're, we're, we're willing to be rejected. We're willing to be persecuted if that's what it means. If these students at Duke are willing to die just because somebody came and challenged them in that way, Jesus is the one who challenges us. He's the one who died on a cross for us. And just like it says in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. We shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us because we're following Jesus. It's like Jesus says in verses 36 and 37. Look in in your Bible. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Every culture, no matter what the culture, every culture points to certain things and says, if you have these things, then you've arrived. Then you've made it. You're valuable. Maybe it's beauty or maybe it's money or maybe it's social status. Every culture is different. But every culture has things they say you should attain. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's having children. Maybe it's... it's, uh, Uh, some certain amount of money or a career. And that, again, the point is that every single culture, there are things that they say that you should achieve and you should gain. And Jesus is saying, if you gain the whole world, you still wouldn't have an identity. In other words, if you base your identity on your career or your beauty or anything else, then you lose those things. You lose them. You don't have a self because your self is completely based on those things. And when you lose those things, you lose your identity. Jesus isn't trying to to get us to switch to finding our identity in religion. He's saying something way more radical than that. He's saying, I want you to find a whole new way of thinking about everything. Which is, whoever wants to be my disciple must follow me. And this means a death to the self-centered life. Discipleship is about obedience. And faith in Jesus means submitting to him. We, We can't write our own rules and submit to his rules at the same time. The night before his death in the upper room, Jesus took his disciples aside and three times he tells them, it's on your outline, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Three times, do you think it's important? Yes, that's very important. 
Clearly, Jesus considered a life of obedience part of what the normal Christian life should be like. It's not like we're, we're Christians and then we go to a deeper, higher level of discipleship. This is a call to every Christian. This is a call to you and to me. Self-denial, cross-bearing, and obedience are not ways to earn salvation. They are characteristics of the new birth. They are what naturally follows Christ living in your life. So following Jesus is a moment-by-moment decision. To, To take the same road of sacrifice that Jesus took. That's what it means to take up the cross and follow him. We have fellowship with him along the way, but following him is not easy. What Jesus is saying, since I'm a king on a cross, then you follow me, and that means you're going to a cross as well. Paul understood that. What did he say? I am crucified with Christ. Paul got it. The next thing we learn about discipleship under number C, the letter B there, is the safe life must be put to death. The safe life must be put to death. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So Jesus is not saying here, now you find you need to find your identity in going to church. Now you need to find your identity in reading the Bible. That's not what he's saying. Jesus says, I want you to lose your old way of thinking about your identity, and now I want you to identify with me and with the gospel. That's what he's saying. I love how specific Jesus is here. He's saying to lose our lives for me and for the gospel. And Jesus says, when you look at the gospel, you'll look at the cross and how I lost my identity to pay the price for sin so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters of the Father. That's an unconditional love. That's an amazing love. And that's how you get a true sense of value. It's not based on whether some person loves you or not. It's not based on how much money you have in the bank. It's not based on your physical appearance. It's not based on your social status or anything else. It's based on Jesus and the gospel. That's where you find your identity. And no one put this better than C.S. Lewis at the end of Mere Christianity. It's like on one of the last pages of the book. And he talks about losing ourselves to find ourselves. And he's actually talking about this passage of scripture. And he says this, it's on your outline. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. Then he continues, the more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. 
It's only when I turn to Christ, in other words, that I find who I really am. That's not why I go to him, but that's the result of going to him. It's by living for Jesus in the gospel. It, it may look to others in our lives who, who aren't following the Lord like a waste of our life. In reality, we're saving our lives. In, in reality, we're becoming <clears throat> the real selves that we are because we're in Christ. And it's worth living our lives for the glory of God and for the gospel. It's a dying to self that others might live. That's not safe. That's not a safe life. But this is what God says disciples should do. This is what God says every Christian should do. It's almost always awkward and uncomfortable to share our faith with others. Uh, J.I. Packer uh, says this in his book on evangelism, which I think is really good. He says, there are in fact two motives that should spur us constantly to evangelize and share our faith. The first is love to God and concern for his glory. The second is love to man and concern for his welfare. That's simple. You know, people are so busy today talking at each other that no one is really listening. And I'm confident that if you really listen to people, you will have plenty of opportunities to share your faith with people. Just sit there and listen, sincerely listen, and be praying on another level while you're listening. Lord, open a door for me to be able to share the gospel. Give me boldness to walk through that door. Give me the right words to say, and he will every time. Jesus explodes the myth of a safe life. And the last thing we learn about discipleship under number three is the self-serving life must be put to death. Death is the reward for living a life that is sold out for Jesus. That's why Paul could say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. More Christ. We get more of him when we die. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So he asked this question in verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Next question. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. That's the answer. Nothing. I, I like the way John Piper puts it in, in one of his books. He says this. What's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? And, and thinking of, of, of the verse where Jesus says, the, the next verse, if I'm going to be ashamed of you if, if, uh, if, if you're ashamed of me. So what does it mean to be ashamed of somebody? The opposite means to be proud of them, to admire them, not being embarrassed to be seen with them, loving to be identified with them. So in other words, Jesus is saying, and Piper continues, if you are embarrassed by me, Jesus is saying, and the price I paid for you, and Piper comments, he's not referring to lapses of courage when you don't share your faith. We all have those at times. But a settled state of your heart toward him. If you're not proud of me, 
and you don't cherish me and what I did for you, then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you and you will perish with the people who consider me an embarrassment. And then, you know, we have a new hope that we can't forget about. We're going to peek ahead to next week a little bit. But look at at the next verse, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. What Jesus is saying is I started in weakness by going to a cross, but someday I am coming back and I'm coming back in power. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And you're entering the kingdom and being a citizen of the kingdom begins with admitting that you need a savior. And then you repent from your sin and the rights you have to your own life. And you follow Jesus. You need to have somebody else who pays for your sins. Because the only way you can pay for your sins is being eternally separated from God. But Jesus paid for our sins. So we take advantage. Why not, why not follow Jesus? Because he's the bridge that gives us to a relationship with God. And so someday this new heaven and new earth will completely triumph over death and the kingdom of God will come with power. And so Jesus is basically saying, whatever it costs you to follow me now will be more than worth it in the end. So let me ask you this. What is it that you give space to in your mind and in your life that's crowding out Jesus and crowding out the gospel? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's whatever it is you are spending the majority of your time thinking about. And what do you need to say no to to say yes to Jesus and follow him? It could be people, it could be ideas, it could be attitudes. Maybe it's something you own that really owns you. I don't know, what is it for you? There's a prayer that A.W. Tozer prays that I think is a great guide for us. It says, he says, Father, I wanna know you, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. Please root from my heart all those things that I've cherished so long and that have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it for you yourself will be the light of it and there will be no night there. What a great prayer. So the discipleship Jesus calls to is not wimpy Christianity. How do we sign up for Jesus' ultimate challenge? Well, it's not like these Duke students. It's not something that just will last for a year or two. It is a challenge for life. And yes, there's joy and there's reward, but God gives us a, a, a rich and full life with him for all eternity. And Jesus wants us to find our complete satisfaction in him. That's what he promised us, the abundant life, that's it. And in a lot of ways, I think it comes down to this. Is your life marked by the joy of the Lord? Is his joy your strength? 
Do I know the ultimate profit of trusting and enjoying Jesus? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood what true discipleship was. And in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says this, it's the last quote on your outline. The cross is laid on every Christian. So it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus' summons to the rich young ruler was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, listen to this, every command of Jesus is a call to die. It's to die to ourselves, but we don't want to die. So we've got this battle going on. And that's why God's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can live the powerful Christian life that he meant us to live. We can't do it on our own. But that's why he gives us the Holy Spirit to do it through us. Think about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a challenge this passage is that we have to lose to find, that we have to die to live, that we have to go to the cross to be resurrected, that we have to begin in weakness and give away everything to find true power. We have to look like fools to, to know your wisdom. It's a scary thing, but Father, you've challenged us. This is the great challenge. To believe you. Enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to, to embrace this and to know this, identify with this life-transforming love that we see in Jesus and We can not just serve our brothers and sisters, but our neighbors and everyone around us with this unconditional and absolutely vulnerable love. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's really good to see you all, and I hope you have a wonderful day. And now, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. God bless. Have a great day. Enjoy some fellowship together.